0: And in loving something or someone very deeply, we become almost a different person. We become flexible and forgiving and caring and sacrificing. And in our joy and caring, we step beyond our old small sense of self. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. We come to sit together. Some of us, as I've said, for some months or years, this sitting group has been going on now for um, nine or ten years, um, to sit, to meditate, to listen in some deep way, or reconnect with ourselves in the busyness of our life. Um, And perhaps in some fashion to use the sense of the spirit to, to transform ourselves. I had a phone call a while back from a woman, a friend who is a writer both of books and a, and a journalist and writes for everything from the New Yorker to more pedestrian um, kinds of magazines. And in, uh, at the time that she called, um, she was writing a piece for Glamour magazine, uh, a spirit, so-called spiritual piece, and they wanted her to write about what made lasting change in people. And so she called me for some (laughs) consultation and she said, lasting change and and as far as a Buddhist goes, that's kind of an oxymoron, right? Lasting change is like army intelligence or something. It's one of those things that it's hard to fit together properly and yet there is something about transformation or change that's true in our spiritual life and so the question is and we hear all these spiritual stories and read the lives of great teachers or inspiring figures how does spiritual life change us in some lasting or significant way When I first began my own meditative practice 25 years ago, and then when I first began teaching, I saw things in a kind of black and white fashion. That is, and you can find a lot of this in the Buddhist teachings along with Christian and other such things, I saw attachment, self-centeredness, ego, greed, hatred, aggression, delusion, as problems to solve, to do battle with in some way, and to get rid of or overcome the bad parts of myself, and fix up and enhance and develop the good, beneficial parts of myself. And so I had some battles, as you might imagine, in my spiritual life, and sometimes one side won, and sometimes the other did. Now, over the years, in kind of observing myself and others, I've come to see that those roots of greed and delusion and attachment and aggression come from yet a more deep level of misunderstanding of who we are. There's a fundamental misunderstanding and a fundamental fear about life that underlies all of them. In truth, the Buddhist view of life is a very dynamic one, not one in which one can think of or create the notion of some spiritual state or lasting change. Life is a flow, a movement. And the Buddha spoke of us as human beings as five streams or five interconnected processes, patterns, if you will, a physical pattern of body, changes all the time if you pay attention. Even on the biological level, all the molecules of your body are replaced every seven years. This is an entirely different set of molecules except for a few special neurons in the um, brain. It's entirely different than it was in 1986 or 87 or whatever. It seems the same, doesn't it? But it's not. Um, The pattern of the physical, the pattern of feelings, the pattern of memory and recognition and uh, kind of how we understand things, the pattern of thought and all our reactions, and then the pattern of consciousness itself that knows these aspects. The Buddha never spoke about people per se, but rather he would speak of the pattern of life that we reflect that we are, much like an oak tree. You have a little acorn you plant it and it comes to be a little seedling and then that grows into a sap, sapling, a young tree, and then a bigger tree and finally a great oak tree with leaves and branches and new little acorns. Now if you ask, what is the real oak tree? Is it the big tree or the sapling or the seedling or is it the first acorn or the last acorn? You can't really say. All of that is part of the oak tree pattern. And what it does is it drinks minerals and water and nourishment from the soil and energy from the sun, and it cycles it through oak tree pattern and does the oak tree dance of little to big to little to big. That's what oak trees do. We are the same. We are a pattern, a process that is never the same. In this process of our life, the patterns that continue for us flow out of our intentions. So the Buddha spoke of the truth that mind and heart is the forerunner of all things. As we think and envision and then act based on those intentions, so we become. The heart is our garden, and we plant different seeds within the heart. Now, what's important isn't what we say or what we imagine or envision to be spiritually good or not, but what is the moment-to-moment intention as we speak and act and live our life. (coughs) It's kind of a puzzle, Suppose we decide to change, we're going to transform ourselves in some way, make ourselves more spiritual perhaps, whatever our notion of that is. Make our life better. So we can decide to do that, we can decide to change our life. Probably you have done that more than once, maybe thousands of times. (laughs) But have you noticed in this puzzle that even though you decide that, Your body doesn't follow, or your mind doesn't follow, or your feelings don't follow, or your habits don't follow. All you have to do is sit one 40-minute session of meditation as we did, and you say to yourself, all right, mind, be quiet, don't think so much. Let me feel my breath, let me be a bit more in the present. Don't get so caught up in the stories or the worries or the fears. Does it listen? The mind has a mind of its own, right? It does what it wants to do. Or don't feel this way or that. You tell yourself, don't have those kind of feelings. Does it help? Feelings like the weather have their own nature. We sit and we listen to the inner dialogue and the various thoughts. And no matter what, our idea of how we should change, even in the spiritual realm. One part says, oh yes, be loving and self-acceptant and compassionate. And another voice says, no, you've got to improve. That's no good. And Change that and fix that. And They're arguing inside there, whoever they are, your parents and other people (laughs) that you know. So one simplistic notion of change is kind of the New Year's resolution change. All right, Uh, from now on, I'll be different. And we all know how long those last. The force of habit is great. Two gentlemen of unsteady gait waited impatiently at the bus terminal late at night long after the buses had ceased to run. An hour or more passed before they realized in their somewhat drunken stupor that the last bus had departed. Seeing several buses parked at the depot, they decided to borrow one and drive themselves home. To their disappointment, they couldn't find the bus they wanted. Can you believe it, said one? A hundred buses and not a single number 36 in the whole lot. (laughs) Never mind, said the other. Let's take a 22 up to its last stop and we can walk the last couple of miles home. (laughs) The forces of our habit. Are very strong, aren't they? At a retreat where one of my colleagues is a teacher, uh, one of my teaching colleagues at this particular retreat is a person who is also a healer and a physician, and one of the students came to speak with him who had had a lot of pain during the retreat and then went on to talk about how he had an ongoing kind of disability. It was a somewhat limited but long-term disability and a lot of pain. And so this teacher, my friend, began to suggest ways to work with it in meditation and physically, and diet and so forth. And each thing he would suggest, he said, well, I can't do that because that sets that off in my body, and I already tried that, and I did change my diet, and I tried. And he, he went through a whole set of things that he thought would be healing got just those kinds of things in response until finally he just sat in silence for a little while and looked at this man and said, you know, I'm beginning to think your intention to stay the same is stronger than your intention to change. You understand, huh? So then what brings about conscious change or transformation? Maybe not even change but awakening, opening, an expansion of the possibilities of our life, an opening of wisdom and compassion, and a movement beyond this body of habit, this what we call sometimes the body of fear that we sometimes live in. What is it that opens us beyond that? Sometimes it comes about that we change when we love something fully, greatly, with all our heart. And it can be an art, we love painting, or music, or a person, or when we love our children really deeply, or when we love a piece of wild land, or when we love justice for all races, and can't abide the pain of racism. And in loving something or someone very deeply, we become almost a different person. We become flexible and forgiving and caring and sacrificing. And in our joy and caring, we step beyond our old small sense of self. I know a friend who is a parent who has a child that the teachers in the school said this boy was quite strongly learning disabled and he was not learning to read or write with all the other kids and they tried things and they wanted to put him in special classes and things like that. And this mother knew he's a beautiful and very bright child in many, many other ways. Reading, writing, math, those things didn't work in his brain in the normal way. And yet she knew that he could learn even that. And she said, I don't know what it's going to take. Maybe he'll only learn. He was also kind of one of these very active kids. Maybe he'll only learn while he jumps up and down on the trampoline, you know, or does headstands, or while we listen to music at the same time. But whatever it is, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try everything until I find the way that he can learn. And she did. She took him out of school, actually, and quit her own work and spent a good part of the year just being with her son and exploring the ways that he learned until she found what helped him to understand. So sometimes this opening, this change in us comes when we love something greatly, fully, beautifully. What else brings change in our life? Sometimes it comes through suffering. Remember, the Buddha said that there are four ways that the spiritual path can develop. For some people, it goes quickly with great joy and happiness. For others, it goes quickly, but with pain or suffering. For the third group, it goes slowly with great joy and happiness. That's right, folks. And for the rest of us, it seems to go slowly with pain and suffering. <laughs> Somehow, I mean, in Tibetan Buddhist practice, one, pay, one prays for a certain measure of sorrow and suffering. Grant that I may have the suffering that will awaken me. Somehow in the pain of living our old ways, it becomes apparent that we can't do it any longer. The attachment, the reactiveness, the addiction, the dependency, the fear, the repeated unskillful patterns in certain ways that cause us pain, at some point we start to feel how painful that is and really recognize it. And in recognizing it, we say, I really give up. I let go. I am going to do it differently. It's like the ex-hostages visiting one another that I've talked about, where one says to the other, have you forgiven your captors? And the other says, no, you know, I'll never forgive them. And the first man says, well, in that case, they still have you in prison, don't they? So sometimes the change comes when we feel that prison that we create for ourselves, when we feel the pain to a point where we say, enough. Sometimes change arises when we are willing to sit in the midst of the difficulties of our life. This is kind of an extension of that last one. And when we go through the initiations that life inevitably brings a difficulty a divorce or a business loss or the death of a loved one or facing some problem that we have run from for a long time or a disease, finding that we're, you know, that we're ill, heart problems or cancer or something very, very difficult. And at first, these things are so difficult, we just want to go away and not deal with them. But they follow us. It's like the man who came on a retreat whose child had died in a car accident when he was driving. And he had so much regret and so much grief, un—you know, really a- almost unthinkable, beautiful young child. And he'd done everything spiritual to deal with it. He'd visited gurus and was doing mantras and malas and visualizations and blessings and prayers and had sort of done four or five months of spiritual whirlwind to try to deal with the grief. And finally he came to this retreat. And at some point in the retreat I asked him to put aside his prayers and blessings and crystals and malas and mantras and all the things that he was doing and just come and sit with us in the most simple way, just to sit with none of that. And as he sat down, in five minutes he was weeping, and in ten minutes he was just wailing and grieving, sitting and letting himself be in the center of that sorrow that was true for him, and that in the end he had to be with because it was his Sometimes sitting in the middle of what is the darkness for us allows us to discover that place of the heart that is greater even than that sorrow, allows us to awaken that spiritual truth. A change comes about. Sometimes it's inspiration that touches us. We hear some amazing piece of music, like this friend I spoke of a few weeks ago who was in South Africa doing, giving dharma teachings to the AIDS and HIV positive community, because he himself has AIDS. He's a dharma teacher from South Africa who's a, a good friend. And he went to teach in Zululand and they performed the first time ever Handel's Messiah um, in Zulu, with 140 voice male Zulu um, choir singing, and he said he could have died just then. It was so beautiful. It was so extraordinary. Sometimes it's inspiration when you hear something that's so beautiful or you walk in the mountains or there's a, a fog that lifts or a magic sunset by the ocean that reminds you of the sacred that you and I and all of us are held within, that we live within. Or sometimes, as I spoke last week, it's not the music or the sunset, but it's a person, a benefactor, who touches that place within us, reminds us. Well, I like this story from our storybook. From the Tales of the Desert Fathers. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment which was worth 18 gold pieces, the Old and New Testament. Once a young brother came to visit him and seeing the book made off with it. So that day when the abbot went to read his bible he found it was gone and realized the brother had taken it. But he did not send after him to inquire about it for fear that the young brother might add perjury to the theft. Well, the brother went down into the nearby city in order to sell the book, and the price, he asked, was 16 gold pence. The buyer said, give the book to me that I might find out whether it is worth that much. And with that, he took it to the holy Anastasius and said, Father, take a look at this book, please. Tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold pieces. Is it worth that much? Anastasius said, yes, it is a fine book, it is worth at least that much. So the buyer went back to the brother and said, here is your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasius and he said it is a fine book and worth at least 16 gold pence. But the brother asked, was that all he said? Did he make no other remarks? No, said the buyer, he didn't say another word. Well, said the brother, I changed my mind. I don't want to sell this book after all. And he hastened to the abbot and begged him with tears to take back his book. But the abbot would not accept it, saying, Go in peace, my brother. I make you a present of it. And the brother said, If you do not take it back, I shall never have any peace. And after that, the brother dwelt with abbot Anastasius and studied with him for the rest of his life. So sometimes... It's that encounter with that remarkable quality in another human being. And it touches that place in ourselves as that story does. You hear that story and it resonates in you with that place that is so loving of justice and compassion and beauty. But even if we touch or get inspired Or reminded and a new vision appears. What happens very often? (coughs) A little while later it disappears and we slip back to our old habits or we lose it. We go somewhere, travel to India, get inspired, then we come home and for some months we're all inspired and then gradually we get to be in our old patterns again. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker some time ago that showed Los Angeles Airport Customs. And it said West Coast Customs and there was a flight arriving from New York. And it said check in Customs here, leave behind any New York bad vibes, any cynicism, any doubts in crystals, bodywork, aromatherapy, spiritual consciousness, any of those things you picked up on the East Coast, leave them here. So we get touched for a moment or inspired or awakened through a difficulty or a changing circumstance or some person or some great moment. But how to understand that transformation that lives with us? What grounds those? What keeps it alive? Several principles to consider. Keep in mind. The first is that it is helpful, maybe critical, to sense the transformations within our own human body if we really want to understand what it is to change or to open. Feel what it's like carefully when you're not open. Feel what it's like not to forgive. Not even saying you should or shouldn't forgive. That's completely up to you, up to each of us. But when there's a lot of resentment held and anger and so forth, begin to pay attention to what it does within your own body. Feel what it's like when there's hatred. Really pay attention to your own body. Pay attention when there is a sense of addiction. What is it like, physically, to live in that? In some way, the spiritual path and just the sitting in meditation that we do has a a dimension of physical transformation, of bodily change, of healing of the places that we've held closed, of our wounds, both emotional and physical, an opening, a release of what we carry, a soothing of the places that have been abandoned. And as we sit, first we feel those pains. We encounter them. And then if we sit and allow them to open, there can come some sense of relaxation, of letting go, of rest, of some fundamental well-being that becomes almost cellular, what it means to rest in your being rather than being on alarm or alert or holding the pain that we carry. So one place to know what what one part of the pattern that, that carries transformation is the honoring of our own body. And the very simple act of sitting still really nourishes that physical transformation. Many other things do as well. It's why meditation retreats a week or ten days, like we just finished at Santa Sabina, can be so valuable just to have that much time to sit and really live in your body and sense it. What else grounds our transformation? A deepening understanding of acceptance and compassion. A good friend of mine, Robert Hall, who is also a teacher of Vipassana meditation and a psychiatrist and founder of the Lomi School, I remember a conversation that I had with him, oh, about 18 years ago when I was a new, when I was just finishing my training as a psychologist. So, as a new psychologist, and he was already well known as a as a psychiatrist, and I said to him, I said, you know, I've gotten in these couple, few years of training, I've gotten to understand people better, and I can make pretty good diagnoses. I can see what's wrong and kind of where it came from and so forth. I've learned to do that, but I haven't figured out so well yet how to help people to change. And he looked at me and he said, well, I don't do that. And I said, you don't? What do you do? And he said, I don't look at my healing work as a psychiatrist, as a healer. I don't look at my healing work with people as a process of getting them or helping them to change. I see it fundamentally as a process of acceptance self-acceptance, and compassion. And I think the deep change that we long for, personally or globally, must be grounded in acceptance and compassion. Globally, it means that we have to accept that there are still a lot of nuclear warheads out there that may be sold to other nations and we have to face that fact and look at it and and bring it into our consciousness that the cold war seems over but there is some things that really need our direct seeing and only when we look directly can some wise response come within ourselves it's the same the most profound changes come based on our acceptance. If you sit in meditation and you get tremendously bored or lonely or restless, the idea isn't to get rid of the boredom or loneliness or restlessness, but to sit and actually experience it, whatever it is that you've run from and be really bored. See what it's like to be incredibly bored, all right. You know, or incredibly restless, die of restlessness, okay? Restless, restless, dying, dying, and just see what that's like. And in the acceptance of the boredom or the fear or the restlessness, something new happens. It takes a great compassionate heart to do this deep kind of opening, this deep transformation. It's not just seeing what's there oh, there's restlessness. I'll try to accept it. Or there's boredom or, or resentment. I'll try to accept it. You know that state in meditation or in your life? Um, it's sort of putting up with yourself. And yourself knows it, you know. And so there's some kind of struggle. For profound change to take place, it, uh, we must hold ourselves with the great heart of a Buddha. Because what's deep in us is longing to be accepted. And we long for a kind of wholeness. Compassion is that which allows us to open. Grounding our spiritual life in our body, grounding it in acceptance of what is, with deep compassion. Also, what is necessary is to establish or repeat or support somehow a sense of wakefulness, to be present. It's so easy, you know, not to be. Otherwise, wherever we go, we have to be there. What is it saying? Wherever you go, there you are. Um, there's a story of an old woman, kind of an impatient matron, who pressed the elevator button in her fancy apartment building and fumed because it didn't appear at once. And finally, after a while, the elevator came up, and there was the elevator, the boy or man who was running the elevator, and she snapped at him, where have you been? And he said, lady, where can you go in an elevator? (laughs) (laughs) the Zen ancestor Wei Nung said speaking of the Buddha nature there's no difference between a sinner and a sage one enlightened moment and one is a sage one foolish moment and one is again an ordinary person So it's not like there's some state that you get to, okay, now it's sort of enlightenment retirement. I can move to Palm Springs or wherever it is. It's easy to go back to sleep and stand and wait for the elevator and be impatient impatient and kind of back into that. What it takes in some way is the repeated practice of presence, the repeated giving ourselves to the moment, which is why we sit or walk in meditation or why we speak about the importance of ethics, of conscious speech and conscious action, not harming others through words or action. The only way that happens is when we bring our attention there, to be aware of our words and the place within us of motivation, of them being truthful or useful or kind, being aware of the way we drive, being aware of the way we relate to our neighbors. And it's not just once. I remember when I was about to get married and I was thinking about, all right, how do you have this marriage vow and say to this person, I will love you and honor you and so forth till death do us part or whatever that you know form you take for the whole rest of your life. How do you make that kind of commitment and know that you can really make it? So I went to an older friend who'd been married for 40 years and had a fine marriage, uh, thinking he would know the answer, right? <laughs> And I said, all right, how do you make that kind of a commitment? How do you know? And he said, you don't. <laughs> and I said, you don't? <laughs> he said, no, you make it every morning. You make it every day. And it was a beautiful answer. So that is what this teaching is, is the repeated giving ourselves over and over Time to sit and feel our bodies and listen to our heart. Time to be present with another person. Time to care the way we work in our garden or wash our dishes or do our political work or our economic work. But to do it with that quality of attention and presence. And we get then to practice over and over again with the difficulties. You sit in meditation and fear comes up and it gives you a chance to practice. Fear, fear, you might name it, feel what it's like in the body, listen to the stories that fear tells. Fear, fear, and if you're really open to it, then maybe it will turn into terror and say, okay, you think that was tough, try this one, right? And it'll tell worse stories and give you, you know, major motion pictures, Jurassic Park or whatever it is. There it is. If you read the life of the Buddha, one of the most interesting things to see in the sutras after the Buddha was enlightened or awakened is periodically Mara, which is the name for a male figure in the Indian mythology. Mara is the god of darkness or evil or um, greed and hatred and so forth, periodically Mara appears to tempt the Buddha or somehow bring difficulties to the Buddha. And each time Mara appears after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara kind of comes up in some way, and the Buddha turns and says, Oh, is that you, Mara? And sort of this very same question repeated over and again. And then Mara says, Oh, dear, he knows me. (laughs) and kind of slinks away. There is a tremendous power that comes simply in our presence, in our repeated capacity to be present with what is. And to practice that over and over in our life is to awaken this this power within us. Now, what underlies all of these that I speak about and thinking about the change within us is a transformation of our identity. On the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha said, Open the eye of insight and wisdom and knowledge and the great heart of compassion. It was like a lamp that was overturned was set upright again, and a- angels cheered and you know flowers blossomed and fell at his feet, and there's all these kind of wonderful descriptions of things that happened. But fundamentally what happened was that he sat under the bodhi tree, he took the seat, and he opened his eyes and his hearts to the whole heart, to the whole of the world, and said, "I will reject nothing." I will sit here in the midst of it all and bring a compassion and an understanding to all of it. And in doing so, he didn't just see, but he sensed with his whole body and being the limited patterns that people take, being born in this form or that form or believing ourselves in this way. And he connected with that which is timeless and universal. He awakened, it's called enlightenment, Satori and Zen. He sensed the whole dance and his own little part in it and discovered that place that was at perfect peace in the midst of it all, not separate, not fixed, not grasping or needing a single thing. In transformation, The deepest transformation happens when we begin to sense that we're not who we think we are, who our mother or father or elementary school or our career or our lovers and family would have us be. We have all these identities, it's true, and we play them and need to enact them. I'm a grandparent as of yesterday. I have a a grandson which is quite extraordinary. All right, so now, granddad, right? Grandpa, whatever, gramps. I don't know what it is. You know, here's this whole new identity. Okay, I'll, I'll play that very happily. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. But a little while ago, I wasn't and now I am. Is that who I am? You know, is it your job who you are? Or is it being a parent or a child or, or, or this kind of a, a wounded person or a noble person or whatever kind of person? you think of yourself to be. Remember that poem I like to read for children. A story that could be true. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are how ready the people who go by you wonder at their calm as you stand in the rain in the corner shivering they miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind who are you really wanderer and the answer you have to give no matter how cold and dark the world around you is maybe I'm a king maybe I'm a queen if you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. Now, the reason children like this poem so much, as I've said when I've read it before, is that most children know that there's a fair likelihood someday there will be a knock at the door and they'll open it and there will be someone dressed in rather splendid garments as the coachman... <laughs> And they ask their name, you know, is this young Sarah or John? Yes, that's me. Well, these aren't your real parents that you've been living with. Your coach is outside and we're waiting to take you back. We placed you here for a certain reason. We're waiting to take you back to the palace where you really belong. They all know that that's so. Somewhere inside. So what deeply transforms us It is the shift in the sense of who we are. Are you a grandparent or a child or this and that? My teacher in India said, you know yourself only through the senses and the stories you tell. You take yourself to be what they suggest. To myself, I'm neither perceivable nor conceivable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am. You take yourself to be everything so easily. For me, this is impossible. Wisdom sees that I am nothing, and love sees that I am everything, and between the two my life flows. The deepest change comes when we, when there, when we touch that shift of identity, of who we really think we are. And of course it happens often at death. But the idea of spiritual practice is not to wait till you're on your deathbed. (laughs) For one thing, because you've made a lot of bad habits that might still operate at that time. But for another, you miss your whole life, right? That's why we come and sit here, to awaken so that we can be with life as it is in a wonderful way. If anyone asks you, says Rumi, how the perfect satisfaction of all our sexual wanting will look, lift your face and say, like this? When someone mentions the gracefulness of the night sky, climb on the roof and dance and say, like this? If anyone wants to know what spirit is or what God's fragrance means, lean your head toward them. Keep your face there close, like this? When someone quotes the old poetic image about clouds gradually uncovering the moon, slowly loosen knot by knot the strings of your robe, like this? If anyone wonders how Jesus raised the dead, don't try to explain the miracle. Kiss them on the lips like this. When someone asks, what is there to do in this world? Light the candle in their hand like this. That's Rumi in his ecstasy, celebrating, something. it's wonderful, isn't it? When we sense that which is sacred and timeless, that's here, it's not far away. It doesn't go anywhere. It's here the moment we rest, the moment we listen, the moment we walk in the mountains. It touches our heart. Then the old habits will come back. I promise you they reoccur. But there isn't that confusion. We know that's not who we are. Our wounding, the addictions, the fears, the things that we're caught up in. We may be caught up, but that's not the ground of our being. And there comes a kind of nobility or dignity or beauty. And there's a communion of that. You know, at most of the retreats that we teach, we end with this wonderful story of Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, saying, it seems to me, O Buddha, that half of the holy life is having good friends. And Buddha said, not so, Ananda, as he often said to Ananda. Ananda said, what is it? And the Buddha said, in fact, the whole of the holy life is association with noble people and noble ways of being and beautiful and noble things. And there's a kind of communion in the Christian tradition they speak of whenever two or more of us are gathered in his name. Whenever there is that sense of presence, of wakefulness, it's as if it's contagious when we remember who we are. And you can find it anywhere. You can find it in an AA meeting, at a special moment, you know, and wherever it arises, it reminds the others of the mystery and the beauty of our own true nature, our Buddha nature, and it has an immense power to affect others. When I talked about my good friend and teacher, Gosananda, the monk who's walking like Gandhi across Cambodia now during the whole election period, or this monk, in Thailand during the student uh, government riots of uh, several years ago, very, very bloody, three or four years ago in the streets of Bangkok. Terrible, terrible. What he did one morning was get 150 monks and nuns who were followers of his, and they took their begging bowls, and they went out in the streets in Bangkok, and they walked right between the barricades of the students and the police, and they just stood there and did meditation for the whole morning without moving. And there's such respect and reverence for the Buddha that much of the hostility and the difficulty and the violence abated because they were willing to do that. I've been thinking about Yugoslavia and Bosnia and Croatian, kind of the terrible things there. And then I read a thing from the Buddhist Peace Fellowship from Aiken Roshi, he was a wonderful teacher and a man of great heart, who was talking about people going there and walking with their begging bowls or whatever it took with a cross, whatever was the right spiritual symbol, and walking through the middle of that, enough people to say, we can't do it anymore. We can't let this happen. But it's not just there. you know. It's in our cities here in this country. It's lots of places that ask us to bring that spirit, to bring that truth, of who we are alive, and when we touch it, then it becomes a blessing that we bestow as we drive and walk and interact with others. As the Dalai Lama said, it doesn't matter to me if there's one or two more Buddhists in the world. What matters is, are we going to be compassionate and kind with one another as a species? If you just take that question for your life, and remember it, and live from it. That's the fruit.